Hey listeners, before we start today's episode, we've just launched a brand new merch store on TeePublic, where you can purchase all kinds of merch, including 80 Days t-shirts, hoodies, hats, stickers, tote bags, and more. If you've ever wanted an 80 Days branded anything, now is your time. There's also discounts on all merch right now as this episode launches, so go to the link in the description or head over to 80dayspodcast.com forward slash merch to learn more. And now on with the show. I am willing to wager £20,000 that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept. I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 80 Days and Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Dublin, Ireland, and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Galway, Ireland. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about Ulaanbaatar, the capital and most populous city of Mongolia. Ulaanbaatar, meaning Red Hero, was originally founded in 1639 as a nomadic Buddhist monastery, essentially a movable tent city, and was not permanently settled at its current location until 1778, where it became a crucial trading hub between Russia and China. The city is located in present-day north-central Mongolia, around 1,000 kilometers or 700 miles northwest of Beijing, and is around 500 kilometers or 300 miles south of Irkutsk, Russia. Its current population is around 1.5 million, meaning it contains around 50% of Mongolia's total residents, and is comparable in population to San Diego or Munich, although it is much more sparsely populated than either. At the end of the 17th century, present-day Mongolia became part of the area ruled by the Manchu-led Qing dynasty, and during the 20th century, Mongolia struggled against strong influences from the Soviet Union and China, until the Mongolian Revolution of 1990 led to the establishment of a multi-party democratic system. In terms of climate, it can be extremely chilly here. The city experiences an annual average temperature of minus 1.3 degrees Celsius, which is around minus 30 Fahrenheit, and temperatures in January can reach as low as minus 40 degrees Celsius, which is also minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit, making Ulaanbaatar the world's coldest capital city. So Joe, do you want to kick off maybe by telling us something that you're looking forward to learning in the next uh, hour or two? Yeah, so I think people are going to enjoy finding out about um, the things in common between a mild-mannered part-time radio announcer in the, in the kind of unexpected part of India, uh, who was also sometimes a, a carpenter, and a powerful descendant of Genghis Khan. So there's something very important in common. Um, and one of them is more surprising than the other. Okay. I wondered how long it would take us to, to bring up one of the Khans, and it took less than 10 <laughs> seconds. I mean, we can't talk about Summer of Mongolia without Genghis Khan. Oh, yeah. But the killy elephant in the guys, room. Guys, we're not doing the history of all of Mongolia because that we would are be, not. you know, many centuries of global conquest. Yeah. Just yeah, no thanks. Yeah. And Mark, what about you? What are you looking forward to telling the listeners about today? Uh, so 
I, I did the thing that you're not meant to do when you're trying to pull a section together that's tight and compact. And I, I read a whole book uh, and uh, then had to compact that entire book into one section of one section uh, of one section. Uh, but um, among various things I learned from that book uh, is, is the life story of a, uh, a little bit of the life story of a bad man, a lot of the life story of a bad, bad man, uh, and possibly my most famous name for anything I've ever encountered. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, mine mine can be summed up in two words. Uh, Mongolian Thor. That's that's what I'm okay. talking about. <laughs> All <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so Mark, you're going to take the lead on early history this time are you gonna tell us they didn't write stuff down uh i i i uh, i think there, there's some writing of stuff uh I'll, I'll get to that they didn't write it down all the way back uh but okay. uh uh if they wrote it i didn't read it uh <laughs> anyway <laughs> it's very pretty yeah, the, the like, mongolian script is really it is beautiful but it, i i can't read it so yeah um yeah, maybe maybe we're the problem. Maybe, maybe oh, definitely. human society is not writing stuff down as a problem. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, I'm going to start with uh, geology. Um, so something called the Mongol Okhotsk Ocean, also known as the MOO, or as I've been calling it, the Mu. Uh, it, it lay between Siberia and Mongolia about 250 million to 130 million years ago. And studies suggest that the Mu was nearly closed off by the Middle Jurassic, which is about 174 million years ago. But even more studies suggest uh, that a very large gap of about 1,000 to 3,000 kilometers still existed between Siberia and Mongolia in the late Jurassic, so kind of 164, 145 hmm. million years ago. Very notable uh, geolo geologic, geographic uh, feature of the area is the Bogd Khan Ul, which is a mountain that is 2.3 kilometers high that dominates the skyline of Ulaanbaatar and is named after the sacred figure of the Bogd Khan, who is a bad man that I will tell you some things about later on. Well, not not mm. all of them, but certainly the one that uh, is in my period of history. Um, he was the third most important holy person in kind of Tibetan uh, Buddhism after the Dalai Lama. And uh, as I say, we're going to hear some more about him later. Um, it's also often cited, this mountain, as the first environmentally protected area. It was declared protected in the 1200s and has apparently mm. been protected since. Yeah, it was uh, like wow. a, they, they, the Mongols basically sent a request to to the Chinese emperor, like saying, this mountain is important. We worship it. Could you stop people building on it please and I, wow. I think it's been corroborated it's, it's been you know whatever the regime has been they've always maintained that mm -hmm. as kind of like a sacrosanct for whatever reserve, reason so. is appropriate yeah, exactly. at the time um so uh moving on archaeology um there was some archaeological work began in 1949 and went on to 1960, uh, which revealed many Paleolithic sites uh, on the Bogd Kanul on the mountain, uh, including a site that was somewhere between 40,000 to 12,000 years ago on the southeast base of it, uh, of what's called Zaisan Hill. There's some kind of memorial there, which I'm not totally sure as to what it uh, pertains, but in this memorial anyway, they found uh, tools that showed the people there hunted mammoth and woolly rhinoceros. Oh. Um, mm. 
Also, we have some red ochre rock paintings. Red ochre being red-colored uh, mineral. Those are from the Bronze Age, about 3,000 years ago, found in Iktengar Gorge on the north side of Mount Bogdkan Ul, facing the city. And the paintings show human figures, horses, eagles, abstract designs like horizontal lines and large squares with over 100 dots on them. I'm now going to kind of switch focus to kind of the first culture, at least, that I, I kind of encountered, kind of particularly named in this area. They're called the, the Zhongnu, or the Zhongnu. Uh, because okay. there's a an area near near modern day Ulaanbaatar which is called the, the Noin Ula burial site, and it pertains to this uh, Zhongnu culture. So they first appear in Chinese historical records about the fifth century BC, um, and this is due to their repeated invasions. Uh, they were invading bits of China, and the Chinese were keen to write this making, down at least, making note of it, Ma- making note of the invasions of them. The Chinese um, famous yeah. for writing things down. And uh, also walls, which is what their response was. They started erecting what would later become the Great Wall. Oh, um, The Zhongnu great. became a, a real threat to China after the 3rd century BC. Uh, and they organized and formed a, a bit more of an you know, organized confederation under a ruler known as the Chanyu. And they ruled over territory that extended from western Manchuria, which is kind of north, 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 east China, uh, to the Pamir Mountains of Tajikistan, covering much of oh, present-day wow. Siberia and Mongolia. So huge, huge so like space. the middle of Asia. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. that's a huge <laughs> geographic area. Yeah, like a big strip from the, the eastern edge of Asia in. Um, and uh, yeah, they they were apparently able to muster as many as three hundred thousand uh, horseback archers, which was their thing. Um, according to Google Maps, this this uh, burial site is about ninety minutes drive from Ulaanbaatar. And they found their fur-trimmed silk gowns, tresses of human hair, pottery, bronze lamps, wooden sculptures, silver plaques, uh, all very advanced stuff. I, I've seen a few photos of it and it, it, is, it is, you know, very ornate and very cool. Um, apparently the reason that they were able to find so much stuff was that the chambers were flooded and then that froze and preserved it, everything really well. So uh, oh. apparently this is kind of quite common for these burial mounds in this area because, you know, I, I guess... However, they sealed them. It didn't last for that long. And eventually they would flood, they would freeze, and then you find them a couple thousand years later. Um, cool. So are, are these guys like the direct forerunners of the, the Mongol nomads? Yeah, I was just going to ask that. Or, did, or did, were, they, were they, you know, this burial site, is that, does that give any indication at all as to kind of their, their lineage? Uh, not particularly. I, th- I think the, the culture kind of goes away or like the you know whatever the kind of the, the tribal confederation structure goes away, but it's probably the same people who then reorganize later on into under under different monikers. Yeah, I don't think they're necessarily. Yeah, I mean, they sound a lot like Mongols, right? There's a there's a different definite Mongol vibe going on here. Yeah, um, and I suppose the landscape sort of lends itself to like it's it's not great land like Mongolia generally. It's not places you're going to farm. No, uh, it's so nomadic, following like pastoralism and hunting. Of yeah, exactly. Birds. That's just what this land lends itself to, and so yeah, that's that's what the people who live here consistently do until the modern era, and even to some extent still Including. in the modern era. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. um so there, there's one guy mentioned in this area called uh, Wu Zhu Liu, uh, who uh, his some of his materials are found in uh, tomb number six. Um, he he reigned over uh, the Zhongnu people between 8 BC to 13 AD, uh, famous for freeing his people from a Chinese protectorate that had lasted 56 years. And uh, he was buried in 13 AD. And part of the reason we know kind of some of, of, of when this happened was that uh, there was a cup given to him by the Chinese emperor during a reception with him in 1 BC. So uh, there's actual kind of, you know, 
I was here at this date. Uh, I, I came they to meet the emperor down. and all I got that was this lousy cup kind of thing. Um, hmm. <laughs> anyway, um, so the last the last person I'm going to mention is is Wang Can or Ong Can or Togrel. Uh, those are the the three names I I saw him mentioned as, uh, and right. he kind of starts to bring us into a you know more familiar Mongolia kind of territory. Um, in in part, so because, just just um, on on the name oh, sure. like Khan is is a general sort of you know chieftain name. Yeah. I think is fair to say. So you know it's that's a title that's not a name. So we're going to meet lots of people called that. Um, and Wang is actually the Chinese for king. Wang, uh, so so King Chief. I, th- I think that's kind of a, a name he was given, possibly by the Chinese, like saying, "Oh, that guy, he's the he's the top dog." Can I? Um, I, I I think there's a lot of kind of referring to people by a single name before, like as, yeah. as them as the person. And I think in that case, it's Togrel for him. Um, in the it was way that probably like what is what his family called him, what his personal name might have been, maybe. I think I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, because like, like 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 Jenkins Khan was was Timogen was his name. T- Timogen, right? indeed. You know, I, I I mentioned how people did write things down, and one of the big things that I I learned from this was that there's apparently a book called The Secret History of the Mongols, which mm-hmm. is a big book about the Mongols. Uh, it was written for the royal family sometime after the twelve twenty seven death of. Uh, can I say Genghis? A large part of me wants to say Genghis. I will, think it's Chinchis or Chinchis or something. Will, I think will, I think we all ch- pronounce Chinges? it wrong. We also Khan? spell it right, wrong if it's if yeah. it's Chinges. Um but well, <laughs> that the, the can go with the, your the, gut, Mark. The, the go biggie. with your gut. Uh, anyway, so in in this the secret history of the Mongols, it mentions how uh, a guy called Wang Can, this this Togrel character I've, I've, I've mentioned, he had a palace in the Black Forest of the Tool River, and the Tool River is what runs through mm-hmm. modern day Ulan Bator. And uh, Wang Can was also the person that Marco Polo called out as being Prester John. And uh, Prester John is, I, I kind of always think of it as Asian Christian El Dorado. That there's people kind of go out there and they're always like, oh, Prester John's out there. And like, oh, really? Like, uh, I should go and find Prester John. Uh, and he was this kind of legendary figure who ruled a big Christian kingdom in Asia. Or, or Africa sometimes. Really? Yeah, oh, it's just this that. idea that there are, there must be other Christian kings. Secret. And, and Wang Khan was a Nestorian Christian, right? I believe so. Uh, I read, like which he, is he fits a, the bill a, for that. A schismat- like a, a heretical sect of Christianity that actually caught on in Central Asia. Hmm. He definitely had an affiliation to the sect anyway. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't know how, how necessarily devout he was personally, but yeah, he, he, he fit the bill from that, uh, from that perspective. Anyway, yeah. Togrel is an interesting guy in his own right. Uh, he had been abducted when he was a boy, as was very common in history, and forced into hard labor. At the age of 13, he and his mother were carried off to the Tatars, who are sort of uh, not Mongolian, but kind of not the opposite Turkic. of Mongolian either, but yeah. more more in Russian kind of territory necessarily. Yeah. So the young Togrel was made to tend their camels, but after the death of his father, he then murders his brother, as a result becoming the head of his own clan. Um, but his uncle, his uncle did not appreciate this and came at him mm. pretty hard, sending him into exile. Uh, in exile, he met a man called Yesuge, uh, who helped him win leadership back from his uncle. Yesuge would go on to have a son called Genghis Chinggis Khan, uh, the main, the main guy. Uh, he was friends with his dad. Anyway, so Togrel would go on to take on 
uh, uh, as an adopted son, which <laughs> actually helped them both. Just have, saying, uh, I, guess. <laughs> uh, uh, I feel I, I feel ashamed uh, of my Western ways. But um, but anyway, the, the the fact that he adopted him, um, the the guy was still really important. Like he was he was on the mm. way up, but also to- it helped Toggle in the eyes of his own family. So it, it was almost kind of like a kind of like a a marriage of convenience in that way that mm. the adoption it kind of it, it gave them both uh better credence from their own their own clans did, and their own families did, did they mm. do the blood brother thing in, in mongo culture i think that might have been so i think he was blood brother with with the, with the father. dad yes yeah. with uh yesuge he was he was a blood brother with him because i i, so I, I saw this kind of formal like, ways to to like bind clans together yeah, in a, they, in a they sort did of a the, the ultimate culture. commitment thing between two two yeah. platonic men that was the thing at the time so yeah for, for sure um but yeah uh, and and that that is it for me so so mark really what you're saying here is is this is the the place has a long history we, yeah it's it's it, like it's underneath a big mountain a river kind mm. of cuts right by it there's kind of forests and stuff and like Mongolia is pretty not it's not featureless, but like it's 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 not it's not got lots of stuff. And there's a lot of like yeah. geographic features here, so it, it is understandable it's, as it's, to kind of it's got a lot going for it as a geographic there, area. There, there's there's no always activity here. But there's no city in this place during the whole Geng- Genghis Khan's conquest of you know, the entirety of Asia and parts of Europe. That's they just leave no. and go off and do crazy things and come back. Like there, there, there's this guy's house, which I guess was yeah. a castle, which I guess because he was an important guy, other people live beside him. But I don't know. We're calling it a town even at this point. Well, it's all about the change. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about Buddhism because you know, of we course. Need to. So at at this time, uh, in this period, we're, we're in and around 1639. At this point, Mongolia was not entirely Buddhist, and during the Mongol period, or Genghis Khan. Uh, was was doing his thing. Buddhism, particularly what was called, what was known as the Red Hat Sect, had been sort of a, a a cool thing for the the nobles and the elite of society to do, but not for the population as a whole. Mm. But in 1578, Altan Khan, uh, who was one of the descendants of Genghis Khan, uh, just like every other one of us, um, mm. met the High Lama of the Yellow Hat School, which is a, a sort of slightly different flavor of Buddhism. Yeah, that's the uh, that's look. Buddhism yeah, the Gelug well. uh, school, yeah. yeah, correct. And I think the Yellow Hat School is the most dominant uh, school of Buddhism now, as far as I'm aware. Uh, okay. Tibetan Buddhism, anyway. Of Tibetan Buddhism, yes. Yeah. So we, we everyone's heard of the Dalai Lama. Mm. So he's yes. the head of, the current Dalai Lama is the head of this continuing Yellow Hat Gelug school yep. of Tibetan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. That started way, 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 way back mm-hmm. in this era. So this guy, Alton Khan, decides uh, he's going to flip sides from uh, red to yellow. Uh, he was converted and received the title King of Dharma. Uh, and in return, the Dalai Lama at the time, as the head of the Yellow Hat School, became the spiritual leader uh, of the majority of Tibetan and Mongolian Buddhists. And therefore, Yellow Hat uh, Buddhism began to spread throughout uh, Mongolia and outside of the the elite classes mm. I, I I did make a brief attempt to try and understand the philosophical differences and gave up. I did too. <laughs> okay. I did too. I don't blame you, Joe. If I can't figure out the difference between Nestorian Christians and, and Roman Catholics with exactly. the cultural language too. Then. Exactly, exactly. Uh, 
1639, we have the entry of probably one of the more influential figures in uh, Mongolian history and certainly in Mo- Mongolian uh, Buddhism and Tibetan mm-hmm. Buddhism as well. Zanabazar uh, was this guy's name. Now, he wasn't, again, uh, like our like our friends, the Khans. He wasn't, uh, that wasn't his birth name. He was the son of a Mongol Tushit Khan. And at the age of four, he was declared spiritual leader of the Khalkha Mongols, which is, which was the largest Mongolian ethnic group. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the the, the group that, which had uh, sort of begun to convert to, to Yellow Hat Buddhism. And a, a, a convocation of nobles decided this four-year-old. He was uh, he had shown advanced intelligence, uh, linguistic abilities, and uh, strong religious devotion from a very early age, even earlier than four, mm. apparently. <laughs> so this is a this is a hardcore toddler to we're dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the fifth Dalai Lama later recognized him as an incarnation of the, ooh, here we go, Jasvan Damba line of spiritual rulers. And he was given the name uh, Zanabazar, meaning Thunderbolt Scepter of Wisdom. Wow. Uh, so in my head, this guy is Mongolian Thor. Th- no, Thunderbolt right. Scepter of Wisdom. But the, the idea here was like he was the reincarnation of some Tibetan scholar, scholar or yes. seer or, or holy man um, yes. like the dalai lama and the pension lama exactly and it was a it was a my impression is that it was a marriage of convenience in a way that um you know this this guy was one of the khans the descendant of the khans and uh was was closely linked to this uh mongolian ethnic group the the Khalkha mongols mm-hmm. uh so yeah. he he basically tied them into the school of Buddhism, which was which was good for the yellow hats and good for you're suggesting that a, a politician and a, 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 a like a, a a leader would try to oh no manipulate the spiritual Joe. devotions of, of the people into no that that seems implausible. I, um, I I have some of that in my section as well. It uh, it goes right mm. into the 20th century. Yeah, yep. it, it 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 is very convenient that the reincarnation of this learned Tibetan uh, mm. holy man happens to be the son of one of the leading khans. Exactly, in a real growth market. Uh, but you know, Buddhism moves in mysterious ways, and who are we to judge, have, Joe? Who are we, we to so judge? Right now, there's never there was never a Medici pope, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, uh, this guy, Mongolian Thor, Zanabazar, would uh, go on to be crucial to the spread of Yellow Hat Buddhism and would serve as a bridge between the Kalka aristocracy and the Tibetan Buddhist hierarchy. So win, win, win. He also created the Soyombo script, which later became the, the national symbol of Mongolia, and it's on the flag at the moment and is wow. a national emblem. I don't know if mm. this is the script that they use in everyday language, but it's, it certainly looks very pretty. We'll, um, we'll include a kind of example of it in the show notes so you can take a look. But they're, they're kind of like um, the top and the right edge are always squared off. And then the, the kind of middle of the character always looks slightly different. And I think they're written downwards, like on top of each other, mm. with the line continuing on the right. I, I can oh, okay. see that, yeah. It's, it's, I, uh, I would call it like a backwards like, or. It's... And then in, in the kind yeah. of like in the, the pit, the, the, el, the armpit of the or, there's, that's where the kind of symbols are. One yeah. looks like a shovel, one looks like a backwards question mark, another looks like a pair of scissors. <laughs> But it, it like we, it is very beautiful. We can it's, we can cool. we could uh, spend all all day describing these <laughs> obscure symbols through the medium of audio. And I demand we probably shouldn't. Uh, but anyway, the Mongolians wanted to build a, a cool house for this guy uh, Zanabazar, so they founded uh, this place, which was originally known as Urgu, uh, meaning palace yurt, but mm. it, it later went on to be known as Ulaanbaatar in 1639 first located around 75 kilometers directly east of the imperial uh, capital karakum 
and around 230 kilometers southwest from the present site of Ulaanbaatar. So the city starts out as a collection of of yurts. To, yeah, it's to a tent city, important basically. Some political figure. Mm. And it moves around until it gets to the area Mark was talking about. That is my understanding. I think it moves more than 18 times or something. So it's 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 known as a movable city at this point. And for nomadic people, um, oh, yeah. why that wouldn't you move your city? Absolutely. Everything's a tent. So it was known as the Yellow Screen Palace, uh, Shira mm. Bursin Ord, uh, and later called Uga by the Russians, and Dakuri by the Mongols. And from the 1660s onwards, basically... A number of different Mongol tribes, mostly the Dzungar and the Kalka Mongols, which are the group I've been talking about, began to vie for dominance with each other, as you tend to do. Zanabazar tries to broker a peace between the two sides, but even the almighty Thor is incapable mm. of getting these Mongols to, to, to put down their swords and play nice. In 1688, a full-scale war breaks out between the two sides. Everybody is kind of warring all over the place. And Zanabazar decides he's going to get the heck out of Dodge, and him and about 20,000 uh, Kalka refugees, mostly nobles, it should be said, uh, flee south to China to basically just wait it out and see oh, wow. uh, what's going to happen. And presumably bringing Urku or, or whatever we're calling it with them. I don't know if they brought the city with them. I, I'm sure they brought um, significant parts of it, mm. but I, I don't know think they brought... it was in Inner Mongolia for a while, which is mm. definitely modern day China. Okay. I think that's the furthest it went. Right. I, and I think Inner Mongolia around this time was kind of being brought in to Chinese influence further and further. Yeah, so it might that's be my understanding as well. Because yeah. what we call mm-hmm. Mongolia today is basically nearly overlaps with what the Chinese would have called Outer Mongolia. Mm. Yeah. So by this point, Zanabazar is very cozy with the Kangxi Emperor, who was the ruler mm-hmm. of the Qing Dynasty, uh, who was, you know, which was the, the dynasty that was ruling China at the time. He convinces some of the Kalka war chiefs then to come over to the Qing side in 1691, uh, which brings many of them into an already powerful Qing army. Okay. The Kangxi Emperor then, perhaps owing to a word in his ear from Mongolian Thor, then looks northwards and thinks, uh, those Dungars are running right up there and we have a, a nice big powerful army down here and uh, maybe I should do something about it. So eight years later, the Qing have uh, basically... Uh, whacked the Dungars and take control of Mongolia proper. Uh, they proclaimed that the new land, which formerly belonged to the Dungar Mongols, was now absorbed into China. Like they basically wipe out. Like it's not the main topic of this this conversation, but like the Dungar sure. Mongols were essentially eradicated. Oh yeah, in I mean, they were they were Mongolia. driven completely out. Yeah, um, which is and, something I'd never heard of mm. until now. So. And the Qing uh, dynasty claimed they were bringing together the outer non-Han Chinese with the inner uh, Han Chinese into quote-unquote one family united under the under Qing rule. Hmm. Uh, I won't say anything about that. <laughs> the Qing were, Ma- were Manchu as well. They weren't mm, They were, Chinese. yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, after the Zungars have been have been uh, taken out, Zanabazar returns uh, to clean things up, although he doesn't return to Ulaanbaatar uh, directly. And then upon receiving news of the Kangxi Emperor's death in 1722, Zanabazar immediately goes back to Beijing to conduct Buddhist rites at his funeral. And oh. Zanabazar uh, himself dies shortly after. Some believe he was poisoned by the new emperor, although that's that's never been proven, about six weeks after the, the Kangxi Emperor. And he was 88 years old. So wow. this guy managed to... I mean, he was a noble, but he still managed to manage to live until eighty-eight in you know the seventeen hundreds in in Mongolia. So, 
I feel like that's a that's a worthy achievement. I mean that that yellow yurt palace was meant to be real real good, mm. real nice in in any of the drawings I've seen of it. And I'm sure he had the he had the best of care. But I mean, uh, it's not like Robert Mugabe. Yeah. <laughs> could could I just say something, Luke? Um, we, we both briefly listened to uh, that interview with Doctor Uranchimeg Sultimin about yeah. her book about the monastery on the move, and. Um, it, she had lots of interesting things to say and we'll put a link in the show notes to it about the art of this time and how it kind of yeah. represented Tana Pissar as both a, you know, depending on the audience as both like a spiritual leader with lots of Buddhist imagery or very much as a Mongol chieftain so mm. he had this dual religious and secular role depending on who you needed to talk to Yeah, and so if you wanted to talk to the peasants who weren't necessarily as devoutly buddhist you were kind of emphasizing his you know his descent from genghis khan and his power and he kind of brought those two together which is is interesting like you know he's become the third most important person in this school of buddhism as well as a mighty leader in exactly and did you know joe that uh, as well as being a major scholar and a religious leader and a political leader mm-hmm. he was apparently also an excellent sculptor yeah that, apparently that's... he was the, he was the best sculptor in mongolia at the time wow. and he's often referred to as the michelangelo of asia <laughs> so <laughs> wow. you know it's quite a he, he I, i've seen some of the stuff that he he, he did is mostly it's like um carvings of, of buddha but uh, yeah, they are, so they are quite impressive Buddhist deities or mm. saints yeah. yeah but it's also fascinating that, like she had an idea that maybe they moved the monastery around almost to bring it to the nomads as much as it was to follow the... And probably to spread uh, Yellow Hat Buddhism, I'd imagine, as well. To kind of make sure you, you, you brought it to the people and made this Buddhism an important part of their lives. Yeah, exactly. Nice idea. Uh, so in 1727, the Treaty of Kyatka, which established and governed relations between Imperial Russia and the Qing Empire, was signed... And almost immediately, Ulaanbaatar becomes a crucial point on one of the largest trade routes between these two nations and also acted as a, as a collection point for goods coming from further west. So like uh, goods that may have been coming from Western Europe through Russia and on into China. Mm. The the most traded items coming from Russia to China were furs and going the opposite way was tea and silk. And apparently this is when tea became the national drink of Mongolia, having mm. not been. I mean, China's been drinking it for years. And Russia basically got hooked on the stuff too when it became available. It is real good. <laughs> By the time of Zanabazar's death in 1723, Orga uh, had already become the preeminent monastery in Mongolia in terms of religious authority. And a council of seven of the highest ranking lamas made most of the religious decisions in the city. And it also become the kind of commercial center of this region of outer Mongolia. And by 1778, the city may have had as many as 10,000 monks living in it. That's a lot of monks. Exactly. That is plenty. That's a lot of monks. We'll take a quick break here and we'll be back after this. So, Joe, do we have a, a finally settled location for our, our tent city at this point? Yes. So, 
after moving apparently 29 times to various mountains and rivers and the Gobi Desert briefly, um, in 1778, the monastery collection of, of yurts uh, I'm sure people have seen yurts before. These are the kind of traditional Mongol uh, residencies. They're really I've quite impressive. I've also seen them referred to as as gears. G or yeah, I think I think gear is is the Mongol word. Oh, okay. Uh, gear or gear, um, but yurt is is the I think it means the same thing. Um, yeah, but by by 1778, it had pretty much settled in in the Tool River Valley that Mark introduced earlier. So where, where Wang Khan was based, just north of Bogd Khan Ul Mountain. I, I would have assumed that over those 29 different moves, the city was probably growing all the time. So the amount, I mean, well, you, you, you said we had 10,000 monks. It didn't start that way. So yeah, it, it probably became impractical at a certain point. to keep. I would moving. have thought so. Yeah. Particularly in the Gobi Desert. Uh, yeah. Might, might have lost a few people in the Gobi Desert. And as the commercial stuff started coming forward as well yeah, you don't yeah. want to be saying to your russian traders actually this summer we're um we're two mountains over yeah it's <laughs> <laughs> a good point so uh, i think the trade really roots it as much as like i think from, from a religious point of view moving well, wasn't an issue but uh, and from an administrative point of view for mongols moving wasn't an issue but uh once foreigners get involved the chinese yeah. and the russians they they have more sedentary worldviews doesn't um, play nice with google maps when you're yeah. The location of your city keeps moving. So it's yeah. in this valley surrounded by four sacred mountains. So one of which Mark mentioned and the others are sacred for various other reasons that I'm not going to go into. Um, this holy city, as it became known, was the home of the these third most important lamas in Tibetan Buddhism who were known as uh, either Khatuktus in Mongolian. B- bless you. So bless, Mongolian bless for you, lama. Mm-hmm. And also the Bogd Gagin was another name I saw. Use the bog seems to mean holy or saintly, mm. uh, like in Bogd Khan, like the holy ruler. So they live there, they're the spiritual leaders of the Mongols. And then the Manchu, uh, the, the uh, government in, in, in Beijing, the, the Qing government, they sent a, a resident governor called an Amban to this district as well to kind of not to rule it, the Khans did that, but to sort of keep an eye on things mm. to, to glower at people from a balcony. Yeah, I'm sure, the, the, I'm sure the, the Khans took that really well. Like, I'm I'm just here to, to keep an eye on things. Well, the relationship I, I saw mentioned is is like um, the British Empire had these residents who lived in places, and the the, you know, the local sultan might be the ruler, but the mm. resident, if he said we're at war with somebody, we're at war with somebody. Okay. Yeah. So, as a result, it kind of combined religious and political power and became a regular site to visit for Mongols on pilgrimage um, or for national celebrations but also for foreign envoys particularly the russians en route to beijing okay. uh, some of whom left written accounts great so by 1780 there was about two nearly three million rubles of trade going through the place so uh, Oof. you could also think of that as being about 1.5 million pounds of tea if you want to think of tea as currency all right uh, i often do so that's the equivalent conversion mm. current tea uh, Qing law replaced the native laws around this time, so the the expansion of Chinese influence was was ongoing in the right. late 1700s. We're just here to keep an eye on things <laughs> and change everything. Yeah, there there was a an important incident in Russian foreign policy happened in in what they called Urga, which is this city. Uh, in, in 1804, Count Yuri Golovkin was going on an embassy to to China, 
and stopped off here and the uh, the Amban insisted that he kowtow to a, a wooden tablet representing the emperor like he would to the emperor. Okay. And he was like, no, I'm not <laughs> bowing to a tablet representing. I, I'm going to go see the guy. I will bow nine times to him when I get there. But I just had a, I just had a picture of like um like a life size cardboard cutout of Donald Trump for some reason in my head. Somebody <laughs> being asked to, well, to, see, to treat it as if it's the real guy. I always think it's like it's yeah. not even it's like plain cardboard. It's just the silhouette. It is just yeah. like <laughs> a really bad cardboard cutout. Yeah, and so he he, he had a, an embassy of about 130 people. Um, including Julius Klaproth is actually an important guy. He wrote some stuff in French and, and German about this. And his father discovered uranium, which would become important to Mongolia later. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so he, he he was one of the guys on this embassy who didn't get very far. And Jan Potosky as well. So Golovkin's kind of remembered for this disaster in Russia. Uh, there you go. In 1809, uh, the fifth Jebsenthambuk Tuktu, so the, the Lama, he, so we haven't mentioned numbers two, three, and four. The only important thing to say about them that I, I can think of is that um, the second Lama was also from a, a Mongolian family, and there was a bit of a rebellion, and then the Chinese government announced that future Lamas will be discovered in Tibet. I did read about this, yes. Exactly. <laughs> Reincarnations will only take place in this geographic area. Yes, reincarnations are That's limited helpful. to the mountains. Have clarity. Um, and, you know, it's kind of, call my bluff. <laughs> Either these are reincarnated Buddhas or they're not. You're called. Yeah. So all of the future, so from the, I think the third Jebson Tamba Ketuktu on, Tibetan boys became the spiritual leader of Mongolia, yeah. which is a weird structure. Anyway, so the fifth... Um, Ketuktu, he uh, began construction of a new temple, the Ganden Monastery, which would become an important site. Uh, as I said, Orgus visited by many, many foreign envoys. One was Igor Fedorovich uh, Timkovsky. He wrote a book about his travels um, through Mongolia and China. He was on a mission to Beijing to replace the, the embassy in about 1820-1821. He had a great time. He got to meet the, the, the Wang which is that word again. We had Wang Khan, okay. who was kind of a day-to-day ruler called Yongdong Dorzia Khan, and also an Amban, who was the Mongol sent from Peking to, to, you know, look over things. And everyone gave each other gifts, and it was very lovely, uh, lots of politics. Mm. But he kind of goes out and explores the, the city, which is now growing. It's not just, he, he describes the kind of encampments of the Mongols as being fairly disorganized, but, you know, he, he has lots of stories, but visiting Mongols on the way here, the great generosity yeah. of all the people. So he speaks reasonably positively about Mongolian culture. He doesn't really say when the Chinese town was founded, but the, there was this town called a, a Maimaicheng, which is a, like Mar- market, a trading market town, town. Yeah, yeah. Market town. Hmm. And this is a name you see a, a lo- along a lots of borders. Um, and there was a reasonably big one already by 1820 in in orga right but he describes it you know he says the roads are uneven and stony the buildings are of wood and in bad condition in the streets which are broad and dirty there are numerous shops with goods of all kinds as he went along a crowd followed us notwithstanding the cries of two police officers who according to chinese custom drove him away with whips oh, so that's oh, no. how he as was the it. style at the time no. um and there was a thing like the the 
the Mongols had to bow to the Chinese officials, which he thought was weird. Yeah, cool. At the time that Timkovsky was visiting, there was a, a a gathering for a new Ketuktu to be installed. So there was lots of people coming to bring their gears to the city just for the special occasion to pay their respects to the new Lama. All right. So that's the thing, you know, we talk about the nomadic aspect of life. People, the, the city would grow and shrink depending on what was happening. The, right. The people would make pilgrimages, basically. Yes, and people yeah. would regularly come to, like, circumambulate the, mm. the yellow gear, the palace, uh, as a kind of mark of pilgrimage. By circumambulate, you mean walk around, Joe? Walks around, yes. Yes, okay. In a very <laughs> intentional way. <laughs> I mentioned the new Ganden Monastery. In 1839, the, f- the, the fifth Bog moved there from the center of the town, largely because he was able to exclude women and the laity from there. That was good, so it's just full of his Lama monks. Okay. Uh, but more importantly, the Russian and Chinese shops were getting a bit too secular and the brothels were bothering him and the uh the air was not considered sacred enough all right so um he he moved in 1839 up to the that hill which is still a that that monastery survived the communist purges and that's good oh wow yeah he died a few years later and the seventh lama would move back to the original temple complex the next lama uh Died of smallpox 59 days after being identified, so he didn't get up to much. They were left without a llama for a while. Oh. And in 1861, the Russians built a consulate, so a permanent residence in uh, in Ikhuri or in Urga, and caused a bit of a controversy because their church was higher than the Ooh. temple. But that's oh, no. just, you know. Just those Russians. The next big Russian explorer was a guy called Nikolai Pshelvsky, who who is kind of known as kind of a conquistador type, like colonialist character in Central Asia. He's not so a monster, a terrible uh, monster. Is what you mean? Yeah, well, you know, depends what side you're on. And he again described the Chinese and Mongolian towns as being quite different, um, and the Russian houses as being lovely. (laughs) And an interesting thing he points out is that the the Chinese traders weren't allowed families. So they just came no. here as okay. single men I get to do that. their job. Of course, they had Mongol concubines, but okay. that was kind of a transactional arrangement. Okay. Uh, and it was weird that they're basically here on the peripheries of China, but they're not meant to be part of this civilization. So you, you um, kind of have a Chinese city growing right next to the Mongolian city, sort of? But a weird one, a weird, lonely city. Okay. <laughs> And now you start to have a Russian town growing up beside it too, each with their own mayors and rules. So it's a very strange place. Okay. Um, He speaks very glowingly about the beautiful temples with their gilt cupolas and the palace of the Cthulhu being always indistinguishable from a temple. He he couldn't tell the difference. Um, And, but most of the other residents lived in yurts, as as we say. Uh, arranged into kind of streets and brick tea was the currency i think that's an interesting thing like you you compressed tea and you carried around bricks of it as currency you're like oh, oh wow. i want that horse okay. here's 50 bricks of tea and you could eat it so it's great as a currency for nomads you know you could either spend it or turn it into a soup or a bread um is cool. it not tea? Add a bit of salt you're not turn it into a, tea hmm? bit of, sure but you, you could make it even foodier if you added some extra ingredients tea flavored food Mm. Um, not so into that so that's that was a bit of a surprise uh, in the 1870s up to 10,000 of the population were Lamas still so about a third of all Mongol men like the oldest and most families 
became a priest. So very religious kind of, city. It's like Ireland in 1952. Ooh. Yeah, but, uh, you know, there was kind of the same issue Ireland in 1952 had of like, you know, could they read Latin? Could they read mm. Tibetan? Okay. Not necessarily. So, mm. you know, how devout these priests were is, is questionable. But they still got uh, three hot meals a day, probably. Yeah. And... Uh, when he visited again, the throne was empty because they had identified a little boy in Tibet who was to be the eighth Jebstabund Katukatu. But uh, there was an uprising in a, in a Muslim region in Western Mongolia, which was stopping them safely traveling here. And Mark, you might recognize uh, the eighth Lam as being an important character. I think you're going to talk about it, him. So he, he's, yeah. he arrives age five. Oh, this is him. Oh, and will become oh no. will become the guy. He he's going to become the, probably the most important post Sanabazar uh, incarnation of this this ancient uh, Buddhist teacher. For for the listeners, oh. he is the bad man I talked about. <laughs> Not the bad bad man, but he he he's a bad man. Okay. Yeah. So uh, in the early 1900s, the population was about sixty thousand, going up to a hundred thousand during religious festivals and and Nadam. Uh, and you also start to get the telegraph and the Trans-Siberian Railway development in the region, which are changing the economics. Does the Trans-Siberian Railway go through Mongolia? I guess it does. No, does it? but there, there were, I think eventually there's been, there was the a stop split. at it. But it was more that it was it was a more efficient trade route to China for Russia. Because mm. you can go to like um, Vladivostok, I guess, but you could also go to Beijing, yeah. I think. So it, maybe it's part of the split. But so if you like could do... I, I, I talk a bit about it in my in my later section. There's okay. sort of like a spur a spur line almost, of as I understand it, from the Trans-Siberian Railway right. as the Trans-Mongolian Railway. Ah, so, okay. Yeah. But, but in this era, it just starts to draw the custom away from... Urga. Ah, okay. Another thing that was built in this era is the Bogd Lama's Winter Palace, which again survived the Soviet purges and now a big museum. Bogd Khan gets married, which I didn't know he could do. And in 1908, there was now 100 houses in the Russian district. Wow. Uh, this was recorded by an American traveler called Lyndon Bates Jr., who would die on the Lusitania a few years later. Oh, So he was an cool. engineer looking into the railroad stuff. Well, he was in the wrong place on a boat. Maybe uh, that was yes. the problem. He was the yes, ship's engineer. Was. This ship doesn't have any wheels, <laughs> you idiots. Um, so he kind of comments on the changes that are coming, how it's how it's decreasing things. And he has some beautiful descriptions of the of the, of the festivals and all the different cultures that I'm, I'm not going to read out, but I'll put some links in the show notes to them. They're all obviously kind of plumped up, uh, and some of them a little bit racist. But you know, um, charming. During a during a festival, the town was alive with people from all the different the Russians, the Chinese, and the the, the Mongolians all mixing together. Uh, he he gets a story off a friend about like the Dalai Lama visiting Orga in 1904, staying in the Gigin monastery, and being very austere, godly monk from Lhasa. I think he was running away from the Chinese at the time for some reason. Some but obvious reason. The local Khan, the eighth bogged Khan, who, who Mark's going to talk about later, kept offering him vodka and saying, mm. I guess the women brought up if you fancy it. And that sounds right. Dalai Lama was, was not. Um, they were different kinds of Buddhist uh, <laughs> spiritual leader, shall we say. Right. Um, so that's Different levels of commitment happened. there. <laughs> I also saw a reference in a few of the Russian accounts of how the Mongolians didn't bury their dead. They just brought them to a, a site outside town where dogs would gather. Oh, my oh God. Man. Um, oh, man. Where the Chinese would ship coffins back to Beijing. Um, so very different approach to life and death between the different cultures. That's what we haven't um, come across before. 
I mean, yeah, I, I, I guess this we've 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 visited many cultures, and just because it's you know provokes a reaction for me, doesn't come mean a lot of, across and, a lot of different burial customs and stuff, but but literally geez. being fed to dogs is uh, yeah. That that's more of a challenge we need to transition to. Well, I suppose your 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 soul has gone off to be reincarnated elsewhere. So does your body matter? Oof. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, the relationship with Qing China gets real bad in the early twentieth century. Yeah. Okay. So Qing has been. We've talked about the Qing before. You know, in, in Kowloon Walled City, in 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 various other episodes about how Chinese imperial power starts to fall apart. Right, the Boxer Rebellion, the Taiping Rebellion. In the face of Western colonialism, China's not really holding together and internal weaknesses start to appear and regions start to break away. Mm. And they basically, because they've spent so much on these wars, they need silver. The Mongols don't have silver. They have livestock and that's they what they've always paid their taxes in. <laughs> so now yeah. they have to pay in silver. They get into debt with the Chinese merchants to get the silver. Mm. It's not good. And then there's these idea these new policies come in from, from Beijing to try and Hanify Mongolia, settle it a bit more with farmers, Han, ethnically Han farmers, as a bulwark against That's Russia. Hard to believe that doesn't sound like <laughs> the China I know. Well, for but but for all the time up to this, Mongolia had been treated differently, and Manchuria had been treated differently by the Qing. They were like these are. Not for Han mm-hmm. people; these are separate, and that's why they couldn't keep wives, they couldn't bring their families. But now they were being encouraged to, and so the last resident to to Urga was Sandwo, who was a Mongol himself, but he'd been very much trained in Beijing. And his trips to Urga went very badly. Uh, like soon after his arrival, he tried to break up a fracas between some drunken lamas and Chinese merchants. And when he came to the, to arrest them at the monastery, they wouldn't let him in and they like threw stones at him. Okay. And he tried to find the Khan. He's like, you can't find me. I'm the Khan. <laughs> um... There, he tried to like enlist people into an army, which the Mongols didn't like. Um, it was seen as a threat to the Mongol way of life. And there was like a massacre when a minor, like Mongol noble, refused to pay compensation for like killing some Chinese merchants. It was all just he couldn't hold it together. And the Mongol nobles convinced the chief lama to have a religious gathering where everyone could come together and chat in secret about their plans to become independent. They sent an embassy to St. Petersburg to try to get some guns. That didn't go great. Uh, Sandwo found out about the plot. He demanded that the, the nobles be condemned by the by the bogged Khan. And they all did apologize until bits of China started breaking away during the same era. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of went for it. There was a momentum behind separatism. And the bogged Khan, now I think going blind from syphilis, he says, yeah, if you want to have your own state, go for it. Good and luck. the Khans raised an army of 4,000 people and forced Sandwo to leave uh, under basically under Russian protection. They escorted him to the border and said, hmm, all the best. I don't think we're independent the, now. Don't let the <laughs> Sorry. door hit you on the way out. <laughs> or, yep. Right. So there you go. That's, uh, that's how we get from a tent city to the capital of a new nation. Mm-hmm. And the, the Bogged Khan was uh, named the head of state of this theocratic nation, the Holy Ruler. Even though he's riddled with syphilis? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, It's cool. the riddling that makes him holy. There's actual holes in him with just syphilis <laughs> dripping out. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, okay, let's take another break and we'll be back just after this. Now, as you'll have heard at the top of the show, we've just launched a new merch store, which you can find at the link in your podcast player or else go to 80dayspodcast.com forward slash merch. However, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you will also be able to avail of exclusive Patreon-only discounts on that merch from time to time. That's also where you can find show notes, full-length interviews, and other perks of supporting the show. Of course, if you cannot afford to do so, the show will always be free, but if you have some spare change to toss our way, we'd really appreciate the support. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast. And now back to the show. Okay, so Mark, how did uh, this new nation led by the syphilitic bogged can uh, get on? Uh, Fitfully, let's say. Uh, Things are going to change, change and then change again. Uh, But just a word on our our dear friend, the bogged can. Uh, So uh, a a lot of my research comes from, I I mentioned I I read a book. The book is The Bloody White Baron. Uh, That does not refer to the bogged can. It actually refers to the the bad, bad man I'm going to mention quite soon. Uh so uh, the book's by uh, James Parker, by the way. Um, anyway, so the Bog Can, he's the ruler now. He's the main guy. He's very happy with this. Um, also, uh, <laughs> quotes from the book about him. Clearly an enthusiastic whoremonger. Uh, travelers commented oh, dis- disapprovingly on his penchant for young boys. Um, he, as, as you kind of said, he was a supporter of the revolution, but it was really about kind of what's good for the bogged here. And, and he thought that, you know, um, once they mentioned that he was radiant as the sun, myriad aged, the great Khan of Mongolia, that actually this yep. could turn out pretty well for him. This this sounds pretty good. I don't think he was like the day-to-day ruler. I think he just enjoyed just being so, the figurehead, glorified. Yeah. So, yes, that, that, is, that is entirely true. And that would, that, would, that would go on to be true over the next kind of decade as well. He never really had any kind of official power per se, but he did kill quite a lot of people by poisoning apparently uh mm. he'd invite anybody who kind of had some fresh new ideas to dinner they would never make it out and that'd be it yeah i think that was the case before independence too right okay <laughs> so so he, he, he killed off any rivals basically in a kind of a in a quite polite uh peaceful hospitable way well, this way. at least uh, at least he fed them first exactly yes uh two other things about him which are just crazy details so he used to dangle a, an electrified rope over the side of his temple so that people would kind of come over to it, touch it, and think that they had been blessed. He thought this was hilarious. Uh, and he also had a weird <laughs> oh menagerie. Um, he had an elephant, giraffes, tigers, and a seven-foot, six-inch giant called Gongor. <sighs> was, was, Sorry, but by was a giant, the, you mean a, a, a giant like a person, person? A, a person. Well, he was the bog basically like a like a the ringleader of a circus? He sounds like P.T. Barnum or something. He, he <laughs> sounds like some you know mad Tim Burton. He's even got a big, a big tent, I suppose. Yeah. Well, indeed. Um, so now that Mongolia is kind of independent, uh, it's free for the Russians to kind of try to stick their tendrils in and take over. So they start providing aid to the Mongolian government to gain some influence and build, uh, for them, a buffer against China. In 1914, they were recognized as an autonomous but not quite independent state of China. Parliament was established, mm-hmm. plus a prime minister and a cabinet, but really it was the Bogd who was the ruler. And as I say, he'll just kill off anybody who looks too capable. Uh, And very slowly and progressively over this period, Chinese traders start returning because, you know, there's money to be made. So they're going to come back. Um, Now, the bad, bad man, Baron Ungern von Sternberg. He doesn't Uh, sound like a can. No, no, no. So 
he he's kind of Mongolian? Prussian German but born in Estonia and apparently was part of a tradition of of these kinds of you know Prussian nobles uh, throwing in their lot with the Russians. The, the Russians actually had quite a lot of German-sounding generals and so on, particularly in the time of the Tsars. That did come up in, in Kaliningrad. We mm. had a war where, where everyone, all the generals were Germans. That's, that's it. He's, he's one of that crowd, basically. Um, right. I, I mentioned the contemplating a monster as a child quote. Uh, so he attempted to strangle an owl at the age of 12, uh, which apparently is a sign of his, you know, his awfulness uh, to come. What a weird thing to do. That, 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 that was very much an isolated factoid in the book. Couldn't get any more detail on that. But um, he he goes out and fights in the Russo-Japanese War in 1904. um, uh, Talked about that in our Coral Islands episode where Uh, where Russia got completely spanked and looked really bad. Completely, yeah. And and he he just enjoyed going to Asia, really. He thought that Asia was amazing and he got really into it. Um, He became a Cossack. So Cossacks are kind of hard to describe. Kind of like a paramilitary horseback slaughtering party kind of like they're 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 kind of like not quite the normal organized army but like they're kind of yeah um but known known for being very killy indeed um and they go out to the far east and he finds himself drawn to a group called the buryat who are kind of you know similar culture to the mongols yeah they they live sort of on the borderlands yeah. around where kyaka is where the trading exactly route through uh true to orga um so he himself violent hard drinking sent away from many individual army units for dueling and general violence quote he is a creature whom one might call suspended between heaven and hell without the least understanding of the laws of this world that was a i think a contemporary Mm. quote actually so somebody who knew him said that about him um 1913 autumn he he arrives in urga there's no plumbing People who went out at night brought a stick to beat back the feral dogs. So uh, that makes more sense in your previous comments. I mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. There's uh, the Chinese and the Russian enclaves. Um, one thing I thought was interesting is the main currency at this period was either brass Chinese cash or Mexican dollars, which apparently was relatively what? common. Yeah, uh, they were kind of just like a stable common currency. Uh, population of Uruguay. It's sounding more and more like the Wild West as it, we go it, forward. It's, <laughs> it's the Wild East. You're right. It's the Wild East. Yeah, it's the Wild East. Yeah. Um, so population 25,000, 40% of that is affiliated with a monastery or another. Mm. So he hung around in Urga for a while in 1913, but got pulled back into the army to fight in World War I, serving in a unit with a 200% casualty rate. And he also fought in the second Battle of Tannenberg, the first mm. one being in our uh, Kaliningrad episode. Oh. In, in this battle, one out of every 15 Russians made it out of there. Ungern was was one of these guys. Again, another quote about him. War was his natural element. After the revolution, he, along with another uh, German-Russian guy, went about this this area of the world, uh, kind of on the border with Mongolia, recruiting for the civil war. He was on the kind of anti-Soviet side. Oh, of course. The Russian revolution happened. In 1917. Mm. Yeah. So, so China's collapsing and getting an, getting a, becoming a republic. Russia's going communist. And Mongolia is saying Europe, Europe is, is devouring itself. Cool. So mm. this is a messy time a, to do anything. It's a very yeah. messy time. Um, so he starts recruiting uh, Mongol border tribes, some of the Buryat, but also a group of Japanese who just wanted to kind of, you know, Japan is kind of getting more powerful here and just wants to project their power into this region. And a lot of Czechs as well. Apparently there was about 50,000 Czechs who were just marching up, sorry, I say marching, they were rolling up and down the Trans-Siberian Railway, just picking off towns because they were 
kind of just abandoned in Russia and were just trying to make their way home. Uh, so he got some checks from that. They attacked Soviet garrisons, but had run-ins with the Chinese as well. The Russian Civil War is absolutely nuts. Uh, I, I, yeah. I read anecdotes of uh, grenades of people's bottoms. And also the single, single favorite thing I've ever learned was that there was an armored train called, its name was Death to Parasites. Um, that, that, that tallies. I think it was a Soviet train. Anyway, so... You think? <laughs> so Ungern loves Mongolian culture, uh, and partially kind of through his connection with the Buryat, um, and a plan was hatched to form a greater Mongolia. The Japanese supported this because they wanted local influence over it, uh, and it would you know chip away at the, the Chinese and would be a buffer for Russia. Um, they held two congresses with representatives from all sides and sent a representation to the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. But uh, the whole plan fell apart, right. and they, they they at one point considered just should we just invade it, uh, sod this peace thing, let's just invade the place, and they they didn't really have the consensus for that either. Anyway, Ungern is still kind of fighting the Russian Civil War, but he's building up his forces, fighting Bolsheviks, raiding villages, uh, also cheerily acting as the main executor in his area. So the White Army would send him train cars full of exhausted Russian soldiers, uh, sorry, exhausted red Bolshevik Russian soldiers, and he'd just kill Mm. them all. So that's 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 the guy. Um, But eventually he was getting pressured by the Bolsheviks too much. They were they were winning the civil war. And um, newspapers said at the time they they didn't know where he was going. Anything is possible with this devil of a man. Uh, And he claimed he would put the bogged on the throne, drive at the Chinese and build a greater Mongolia, as he earlier said he would and then failed to do. Uh, But really, he's just fleeing, fleeing the Bolsheviks. Now, he's back in Mongolia. But Mongolia is, as I say, kind of now much more under Chinese influence again, uh, in part because... Yeah, the Republic of China kind of said, no, you are part of China. That's true. Like, we, we defeated the empire and we get to rule everywhere China rules. They, 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 that's true, but also kind of the Russians didn't really break in as much as they had wanted to because the Russian Civil War had mm. kind of you know thrown all that up. And the Mongolians were looking at that mess yeah. And people like Ungern, who are just, you know, massacring trainfuls of exhausted men and going, oh, actually, it would be nice to have some help, maybe. Um, 1919, the Chinese had successfully negotiated an end to Mongolia's partial autonomy, making promises to the local nobles. But the bogged Khan was not particularly happy about this. What's in it for me, he asks. Meanwhile, the Chinese had raised a mini army to send to World War One to curry favor with Britain and France. But the war was now over. Um, so they they turned it into a border force and used it to invade Mongolia. Uh, they forced the regional leaders and the Bogd to literally kowtow in front of a picture of the Chinese president, because as you say, it's a republic now. Oh. And uh, they took everyone's valuables, even the Chinese merchants. So they were not popular. Ungern uh, picked up the phone, the kestrel. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I don't know how he's doing this, basically, but he got in touch with the Bogd. And offered to him uh, to say, I'll, I'll, I'll get rid of the Chinese for you. I'm going to establish a new Greater Mongolia. Um, and at this point, he had about 2,000 men and he had a flag with a curly M and uh, an II below it. And this was for Michael II, who was the Tsarist prince uh, that Ungern hoped would revive old Russia against the nasty Bolsheviks. Oh, wow. He didn't know that this prince was three years dead at this point. Uh, yeah. And in his in his like mini army, he had uh, Tatars, um, Russians, Mongols, and as I say, sixty Japanese, uh, and about a hundred uh, sorry, several hundred men from the Dalai Lama as well who had pledged support. Um, 
Oh, of course, because the Dalai Lama refused. Yeah, I think Tibet also kind of said, you know, we I was we were sort of uh, we had a religious political relationship. You didn't rule us. Yeah. Yep. And the Republic of China didn't share that view. He, he's he's supporting his Mongols, his Mongol friends who are in the same same position as, as he. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So. Unger decided that his opening attack would be on October the 26th uh, of, this is now 1920. Um, he was guided by soothsayers uh, interpreting the cracks in boiled sheep bones. Uh, several Buddhist lamas were shot by the Chinese and about 50 people killed as the Chinese freaked out by his like mini invasion. Um, just kind of cracked down on everything. Lots of just random acts of violence, seemingly. And they imprisoned the bogged. Uh, Ungern did not succeed and retreated about 160 miles out into, you know, the kind of Mongolian steppe. But that means he's spending winter out in the wilderness. Um, he had to ride a wave of scurvy, semi-starvation, and even a touch of plague in his camp and only survived by robbing anybody that they met of all of their livestock. Um, he poisoned anybody deemed too sick to save, and the healthy That's were becoming a theme. Well, th- th- things are going to get we worse. We've had a lot of cannibalism in this one, but we've had a lot of poisoning. It seems like I don't think we're going to have any cannibalism in this section. Um, no. Almost everything else. Um, so the healthy were whipped with bamboo for you know his increasingly mad imagined infractions. Uh, he would force people to spend the night in a tree and execute anyone who fell out, and he'd just burn deserters alive. Of which there's, there was a few. There's not that many trees in a lot of Mongolia. It's this is a theme for him making people spend the night mm. on things. There was also a, a thing where he he fed people a diet of raw meat to weaken them, and then send them out to spend an, uh, a night on the ice, and then they were attacked by wolves. That was another cool thing. Oh my god! <sighs> yeah, yeah. Um, this was his own army. This is this is his men. Yes, these are these are All his right. friends. These are the people he likes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> He's a bad, bad man, you guys. So he keeps sending raids to Urga, uh, lighting fires in the Holy Mountain, visible from the city to remind them that he was still there. On the 18th of January, 1921, he attacks. The Bogd himself had increased in, in girth, let's say, in prison, and had to be flanked on either side by muscular Tibetans uh, as they rescued him to stop him from falling off of his horse. Uh, on the morning of the 1st of February, 1921... Glamorous. Yeah, exactly. The Chinese officers stole every vehicle and bit of gasoline they could and fled. The Chinese soldiers were either funneled into machine gun kill boxes as they fled or died in savage bayonet cleaver fights in close quarters. Uh, 2,000 fled and of the 3,000 that left, only about 800 survived. You know, there was men fleeing with no shoes in the middle of winter in Mongolia. Um, it was very easy to die. Un- Ungern also... Um, if, you know, if we haven't said enough, also huge anti-Semitic. So the few Jews that were there were uh, were subject of a pogrom. Uh, so I didn't even know there were any. Like, how was he? Well, how was this even on his mind? He 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 was he was a really bad guy. Um, he, he really he really did not like Jews. So he did this. There you go. Anyway, so. As a result of this great liberation of Urga, uh, he was made a double prince, a Khan, and a reincarnation of the Bog's predecessor to honor his liberation. The two, you know, had a marriage of convenience, but it was an uneasy relationship. They kind of saw the necessity and threat of the other. They issue some new money, uh, backed by the Bog's uh, livestock. They were known as barons because of Baron Unger and von Sternberg. And they were, again, tied to the Mexican dollar, which is really carrying a lot of water for these guys. I think brick tea is a better currency. <laughs> but absolutely. You know where you stand at brick exactly. tea. Yeah. 
Uh, you can make it into tea bread, uh, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, Yummy. Rather than establish courts, Ungern would simply force anybody who broke his rules to live on their roof for a month. As I say, he has a theme sure. here. No trees, but we'll, we'll put you on your roof. This supplemented his anti-communist and anti-Jewish reign of terror. 1,300 people fled this kind of general mayhem. Uh, and in time were followed by another 15,000 from all over Mongolia. Oh, wow. Uh, he was doing enough stuff and he'd, he'd basically kind of taken over the capital of Mongolia uh, and that kind of uh, gave him a bit of a rep and people started to pay attention and the Bolsheviks started to pay attention in particular, his, his old nemesis. And they recruited two local revolutionaries, uh, Damdin Subatar, aka Axe Hero, apparently that's what that translates to, mm. and Kurlugin Choibalsin. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hear about him a little bit later as well. So they were supplied by the Russians and they started, you know, taking over land, taking over territory and set up a rival government. Ungern, meanwhile, as I say, was plundering everything that wasn't nailed down uh, to raise funds for his campaign because he still has to take over the rest of Mongolia. By May, oh yes. by May 1921, so this is only a few months after he arrived, he totally out- overstayed his welcome and left to go north to fight these revolutionaries and the Bolsheviks. He left a long note saying, truth and mercy had been the old way, but the, the new doctrine was one of truth and merciless hardness. Whee. Anyway, cool guy. Uh, May the 21st, they rode out. But uh, as soon as they met this Bolshevik-backed uh, revolutionary army, they were totally crushed. His fighters, I think, were just so exhausted from years on the run from the Bolsheviks. And, and on the roof eating raw <laughs> on meat. On the roof eating the raw meat and <laughs> fighting off no winter boots on. Having the plague, yeah. all these all these cool things. So, uh, yeah, he, 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 I, I will... What I will, a life I've lived. Yeah, exactly. I hope they weren't beaten with merciless hardness. <laughs> so... The decision by the Bolsheviks then to liberate the rest of Mongolia was taken on the 28th of June and 10,000 men begin marching towards Urga. They arrive and recognize the Bogd, which he seemed to like. Ungern would go on to survive two attempts in his life by his own men, only to then be captured uh, by, by some Mongolians, actually, some Mongolian allies. And they quickly passed him to the Bolsheviks, who, after a huge show trial, just kind of did away with him quite quietly. Sure. Um the Russians initially did not change a lot in their occupation of Urga until the Bogd died in 1924, but that kind of cleared the way for them to get into gear. They then declared because he was the eighth of his line, he would no longer be reincarnating. So that That's done now. No more Bogds, no more Lamas. That's all finished, says Russia. As I say, they're leaning on the point that uh, he was the eighth incarnation, which in their view was, why would you need a ninth? Uh, enough. That was, that's enough from us. I, I, I heard they just uh, the, the parliament just sort of outlawed reincarnation, which I also like as an approach. You know, much like the the, the Chinese government were like, I mean, reincarnation is now happening in Tibet, and they're like, no, no, they don't. Yep. They're illegal. <laughs> it's uh, you can't do that. It, Stop it, it. It is a bit kind of you know draining the magic out of it. It's it's like seeing kind of yeah. Santa at the back of the shopping center is smoking. Like it's it's you know. <laughs> Santa's very stressed at this time of year. Um, so in 1924, this is also when uh, Urga, or, or whatever else it's been called, has now been called Ulaanbaatar, or uh, Red Hero. And Mark, sorry, is, is that a particular Red Hero, or just like I, general Soviet heroism? I don't know. Um, I couldn't find anything I like assume that. it's just Russian 
it's better than Big Camp. Like, it didn't have a particularly good name to begin with. Anyway, the, the Soviets are increasingly hostile to Buddhism and slandered mm-hmm. the Bog's memory, which is pretty easy to do because of all the stuff he did. Um, in the 1930s, things become worse, and there was a huge push to change Mongolian society and remove their nomadic lifestyle uh, and you know, just totally wreck the culture, basically. Um, so, sorry, the Soviet Union wanted to, mm-hmm. like... To like make all people equal and equal, and but equally bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, equally frowny. Uh, I know this has been working for you for like a thousand years. Yeah, but have you considered so, you know grey factories? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just mm, so, so, some that's notes. been working yeah. real good elsewhere. Have so, you considered no religion? <laughs> <laughs> so big push for collectivization, which was you know we've said the style at the time, uh, and obviously would lead to mini famines and so on. Um, of course. They, they would kill their own animals rather than hand them over. So there was a lot of that. The the herd dropped by a third, which is, you know, it's like the economy dropping by a third, effectively. Um, third of a herd. Oh, boy. Um, in 1932, frustration with the Russians sparked a violent revolution, including accounts of Buddhist warriors literally ripping the hearts out of their enemies. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And the cooperative farms were burnt down. But by October, it had been put down by uh, air power, and a special detachment of the NKVD, the uh, Russian secret police, hundreds were shot uh, as a result as reprisals. In 1935, one of those anti-Ungarn leaders, I mentioned that uh, Choi Balsin or Choi Balsan, I've seen both, uh, becomes supreme leader of the local party. And in 1936, leads a big purge intended to replicate the purges mm. in Russia. So in this purge, 16,000 monks were shot in one year. Um, that might have been all of Mongolia. So, I mean, but a lot of the temples were based in Urga. So kind of yeah. take your pick. It's all bad. Uh, a multiple of that uh, had their status as, as lamas and, and monks revoked. And by 1938, only 26 of 771 temples were still functioning. And 17,000 of 85,000 wow. lamas remained. So the the whole kind of structure of 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 uh, mongolian buddhism has been has been stripped away as the monks were also the education system that is now also gone basically um mm-hmm. and also to mention all the gold from the temples which was which was significant but was kind of sacrosanct wasn't kind of you know seen as a a, a liquid asset uh was pretty much kind of stolen away and that was the accumulated wealth of generations of mongolians so um also, depressingly, apparently, young Mongolians were easily recruited to, to kind of debase the culture. They were like the kind of the mob for this, basically. Yeah, well, I mean, China had the same with the Cultural Revolution. Uh, like, yeah. you know, your parents are wrong. Join the new movement. Yeah, a fresh new sound. No, it's very the depressing. Like of, of the, I believe the the Gandam Monastery is the only monastery that survived this. And the anecdote I heard was like some visiting. US envoy asked to visit uh, like oh did, show me yeah. one of your Buddhist temples and they're like oh, oh crap do we have, yeah. do we have oh, that one, one? that one's still there yeah. and then they kind of kept this because you know foreigners that's liked it yeah it was, yeah. It was uh, US vice yeah. president I think uh, yes mm. yeah that's the anecdote I saw yeah so last thing I'm going to mention is that uh, with regards World War Two. Obviously, not really a lot of fighting in this area, per se, but uh, Mongolia was technically neutral, but actually kind of neutral on the Russian side. So really, they spent most of their time just mm-hmm. kind of funneling food to Russia. Um, that's pretty much all they did, uh, taking us all the way up to 1945. Cool. Is it cool? <laughs> it's cool the word you'd use, Luke. 
No. 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 Not cool. Not cool. All right. Not cool. Yeah. Move on. Not cool. Not cool. Not cool. Anyway. I'm going to do a little bit of flag talk here. Let's, let's, uh, let's do flag it. talk. That's eating of, of raw meat and uh, and such. So yeah, shortly after World War II, uh, the new flag came in. Um, there's been a multiple, uh, many different flags uh, throughout the, the history of, of Mongolia. A number of them with tails, basically looking like the letter E, which is really interesting. Like three cool. three tails on the on the right side of the flag. That's fun. Yeah, I've never really seen that before on any flag. I mean, good on a, on like a spear if you're riding across the Absolutely, ah, yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, unfortunately, they they didn't keep that element. So uh, the the flag that was adopted shortly after World War Two, uh, we have three equal vertical bands of red on the left and right side, and a blue band in the middle. And on the left, red band in yellow is the national emblem, the Soyombo, which is a column arrangement of abstract and geometric representations for fire, sun, moon, earth, water, and the yin and yang symbol. Which is quite cool. This symbol was originally topped by a communist star uh, during the final 47 years of the Mongolian People's Republic, and it was revised later in 1992, uh, which I'll talk about a little bit later. But yeah, that's the flag. What do you guys reckon to this flag? I like the the very distinctive symbol. That's nice. It Good is. branding. It is. Um, I mean, the rest of it's fine. I, I'm not sure why they don't have it in the middle. It feels like it would be work better in the middle. Yeah. But there you go. I, I do know in like in China, the left side is considered just side of honor. So maybe interesting. I think the blue is supposed that. to represent the sky, is my understanding. But I don't see why that would preclude it from sideways having the, the... the symbol in it. Um, anyway, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, Soviet Union began to exert its influence pretty heavily on "quote unquote" independent Mongolia. Uh, this was done largely through the Mongolian uh, Revolutionary People's Party, uh, which was a ruling party at the time and established very strong ties to the USSR throughout the 20s and 30s. The Republic of China officially recognized Mongolia in 1946, and the two countries right. signed a friendship treaty in February. Oh, of course, because Republic of China was now Mao's Republic yes, of China. Yes, Yeah, okay. So, post-World War II. Under Choibalsan's rule, there were some improvements in Mongolia's infrastructure. Uh, roads were improved, communications were improved, mostly with uh, Soviet assistance. And steps were taken to improve the country's literacy rate, which had obviously been devastated by uh, the purges. Uh, Is this when they introduced the, the the writing in Cyrillic letters? I believe so, yes. Ah. So the, the nice Mongolian script was kind of replaced with Russian-looking that, Yep, That's standard now, right? Because it's always... That's standard yeah. now. That's the standard now, yep. Mm-hmm. They've got a few extra letters because they have some different sounds. But the 11th Party Congress was held in December 1947, which improved Mongolia's first five-year plan to intensify development of the economy, industry, uh. animal husbandry, and agriculture. In 1952, Choi Bolsan died, and uh, we have a new character enters the, the scene, Hume Janine Sendenbal. And he, get, he came to power and swiftly purged his political rivals. Uh, and he would go on to be Great. the longest serving leader of any Eastern Bloc country, serving over 44 years in office until his eventual expulsion in 1984, which I'll touch on a little bit later. Uh, I read a, an interesting book by uh, a guy called Melvin C. Goldstein. It says, um, the goal of the Mongolian Revolutionary Party was to transform Mongolia from an underdeveloped nation of herders into a modern agro-industrialist socialist state. New urban industrial centers, mostly mining, were developed and Mongolia went from a country that was 78% rural in 1956 to one that was 58% urban in 1989. What? 
the Mongolian communists had no use for old customs or nostalgia. Mongolians needed to know Marxism-Leninism, so the Russian language study was made mandatory in school. This enabled many, if not most, of the country's intelligentsia to study and travel in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. Mm. Reciprocally, tens of thousands of Russians and Eastern Europeans have lived and worked in urban Mongolia. Thus, while Mongolia's capital city Ulaanbaatar was 2,900 miles from Moscow, intellectually and emotionally, it was right next door. Wow. Mm. That's a change from uh, looking to Lhasa and Beijing. It is. Uh, so the construction of the Trans-Mongolian Line of the Trans-Siberian Railway began in 1947, reaching Ulaanbaatar from the north in 1950 and uh, going on to the Chinese border in 1955. Or Before that, the only r- railways in Mongolia had been a 43-kilometer line connecting the coal mines uh, to the capital and a Soviet-built 236-kilometer freight-only branch completed in 1939. So... Yeah, this this definitely helped with economic development, Sim, similar to, to to kind of what we talked about before, uh, linking China and Russia and Ulaanbaatar being a, a handy stop-off point on the way. Yeah, and and when trains went through, when trains went the other direction, it really cut Ulaanbaatar off from this trade. Exactly, so this kind mm. of restores some of that. Exactly. In 1960, a new constitution was adopted, and it marked the beginning of the country's shift towards being a more uh, industrial agricultural society. And it highlighted the Mongolian People's Revolutionary Party as the quote-unquote guiding and directing force in society and its all-conquering Marxist-Leninist theory. <laughs> yeah. That's not uh, unhinged sounds, at all. Sounds uh, flexible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 1972 saw the death of Jam Srangin Sambu, who had been the president uh, to the mid-50s. And uh, he... <laughs> I was just reading a little bit about this guy uh, yesterday. He was also appointed, uh, part of his path to power, he was appointed to be ambassador to the USSR in 1937, despite having no diplomatic experience and never having traveled abroad. That was fantastic. Like this guy is is appointed to be ambassador to your most important international, you know, partner. And he'd never even been abroad. Anyway, so the presidency remained vacant for a couple of years until 1974, when Sendenbal filled it himself. So he's basically becoming kind of oh. both president and prime minister, I think, at this point. Healthy, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of a bowed can move. Uh, mm. Just add high priest. No, no one's yeah, using this? Exactly. Uh, I guess I could just... Okay. Nope. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to step right in here. So he adopted the, the title of secretary general. And in December, he began another series of purges of prominent party members, which he described as rooting out the weeds. The party ordered the the registration of all typewriters, duplicators, and photocopiers in an attempt to control the dissemination of information. My God. Great. Mm. So you can see the direction that things are going. Um, Under, or sorry, most of the old uh, Gera districts were replaced by Soviet-style blocks of flats. Notoriously attractive. Yeah, um, often directly financed by the Soviet Union. And so most of what you'll see in modern Ulamatar is the result of Soviet construction uh, from the 1960s to around 1985. There were also cinemas, theaters, and museums built in the city around the 50s and 60s, and there were increases in the number of green spaces in the city. Uh, but as you mentioned, Mark, uh, due to the influence of socialism, many of the monasteries, temples, etc. Were, were destroyed or closed. Television broadcasting, which was heavily heavily controlled, began in uh, September 1967. And in November 1973, Mongolia and the Soviet Union agreed to build a copper mining and ore concentrating joint venture, which proved crucial to developing Mongolia's prosperity on the basis of its mineral wealth. 
and uh, mm. is still crucial today. I'll talk a little bit about the economy at the end of this episode, but um, through the 1980s, Mongolia's industrial sector became increasingly important. And by 1989, it accounted for an estimated 34% of material products compared to 18% from agriculture. So it really becomes like you, you, we see this kind of 180 degree turn from being an agricultural society to being, you know, uh, a producer of, of, of minerals and, and ore. Um, and today it makes up the vast bulk of Mongolian exports. Throughout this period, uh, the country as a whole, as well as Ulaanbaatar, began to develop stronger and stronger ties with the USSR, move further and further away from China. Tendenbal was a adamant supporter of the incorporation of Mongolia into the USSR, particularly in the 60s and 70s, although I believe he did later change that stance. But he was encouraging, basically, Mongolia to just be absorbed into the greater mm. USSR, uh, but never managed to quite make it happen. In January 1966, Mongolia and the Soviet Union had signed a new treaty of friendship, cooperation, and mutual assistance, which included several secret protocols allowing Soviets to station troops, aircraft, and missiles in Mongolia, which the Chinese were very unhappy about. Those tensions sort of peaked in the 1970s when Mongolia accused China of wanting to annex itself, and uh, China in turn accused the Soviet Union of occupying Mongolia by stationing troops and military equipment there. And in 1978, they called for the complete withdrawal of Soviet troops from the country. Mongolia, in response, then began expelling Chinese immigrants in early 1979, accusing them of quote-unquote expansionist plots, which Oof. deepened the distrust between the two countries. So really, uh, you know, by the time we get to 1980, there was really a, a, a tug of war happening between Russia and China, uh, it, with Mongolia really leaning towards um, I, I, the Soviet yeah, side. Yeah, I think that was a broader tug of war. Yeah. That they had been on the same path for a while. Exactly. And then there was a split in sort of direction. Yep. And the population of the city by this time had risen to around half a million people. Mm. However, uh, Tsendenbal began to be frozen out in the early 1980s, particularly after the ascension of Leonid Brezhnev in the USSR, mm -hmm. who began to normalize relations with China. So the temperature begins to decrease a little bit. And in August 1984, Tsendenbal himself was removed from all of his party posts while on holiday in Moscow. And so he never came home and died in exile in 1991. Oh, wow. Yep. Uh, that's uh, that's quite bloodless. Yeah. Uh, I think he, he probably realized that if he were to go back to Mongolia or to Ulaanbaatar, he probably wouldn't be received very well. Yep. His replacement, a guy called Bat Monk, called for the reform of the si of the political system cool and criticized Tendenbal uh, extensively. But uh, his attempts at introducing versions of the Soviet policies of glasnost uh, or openness and uh, perestroika, which was economic and political restructuring, were largely ineffective. But normal diplomatic relations resumed between Mongolia and China in 1986, just in time for the fall of the USSR. <laughs> Brilliant. So really snuck in under the wire there. And then we have the bubblings of uh, democracy happening in Mongolia mm, well, at for, this point. For, yeah, as, as happened across mm. a lot of the Eastern Bloc. Exactly. I mean, the Soviet Union collapsed piecemeal. Yep. Didn't all, all go in one go. Exactly. So there's a guy called uh, Alba Dorj, uh, who was one of the, became one of the leaders of the revolution and had been studying in the USSR. And he had heard of the ideas of uh, Gorbachev, particularly Glasnost. And he began to spread those ideas to other young, politically-minded people in Mongolia. And he, along with 12 others, 
were the founding members of a group uh, known as the 13 Leaders of Mongolia's Democratic Revolution. And they staged their first major protests in Ulaanbaatar. They kind of um, you know, gathered people anyway on the on the 10th of December 1989, largely influenced by the fall of the Berlin Wall, which happened about a month earlier. And uh, Albadorj announced the creation of the Mongolian Democratic Union. So we'll take a quick break there, and then Joe, you can tell us how that all panned out. Joe, do we have do we have democracy in in Ulaanbaatar finally? Yeah. Yay! Happy <laughs> Christmas. All right, next section. Yeah. <laughs> so, listen, I'm not I'm not going to go through the the history of of the entirety of Mongolia from 1990 to, to now okay, in detail. Okay. Great. Um, but there's just a few, as I say, like a few kind of Ulaanbaatar specific people from here, or people who came here and events that happened here that are worth mentioning, um, and. For a broader history of the the era, maybe we'll have to wait till another time. Sure. But as you say, in 1990, the, the Mongolian Revolution kind of picked up a pace, starting from those small gatherings. Um, there were they kind of grew into large scale pro democracy protests in the sub zero January weather. I can't imagine it was comfortable to be out protesting in January in no, Qatar. But, but probably had some nice fur coats mm. though. Like it gets very cold. I mean, we haven't mentioned that, but like. You know, gears are quite well insulated, mm-hmm. and people wear a lot of fur. Mm. But it's a cold place in winter, yeah, and a hot place in summer. So it's quite a dramatic swing of um of of climate. But you know, winter was when things were happening. So if you wanted to be part of change, you had to you had to act then. Um, one of the key leaders of the student movement looking for independence was a uh, Sanya Surenjin Zorik. Uh, he was educated in Ulaanbaatar. He was um, the grandson of a Russian cartographer and ethnographer who'd come across the border during the early 20th century. And there's a there's an important moment that's heavily photographed and like the photographs widely shared about uh, when the protesters were scuffling with soldiers and there was like inevitably it was going to lead to violence, kind of Tiananmen Square moment. Zorik took a megaphone and sat atop a friend's shoulder, made himself visible to the crowd and called for calm and was successful so this picture of him addressing the crowd became a real symbol of their of this peaceful revolution mm-hmm. so it never came to significant bloodshed and in march mongolia and the us saw announced that all soviet troops would withdraw from uh, mongolia by 1992 and to was among many people elected to the people's great chorale in the the coming elections That's basically first the democratic elections isn't it? The, the the yeah the parliament yeah. The, the first democratic elections were held in July that year. And the Communist Party did win, like the, the now called the Mongolian People's Revolutionary Party. They they won in a democratic election. Like people weren't 
looking for dramatic change, it appeared. But they like being in the boat, ballot box. Presumably. Yeah, but there were now people like uh, Zurich on, on the opposite side, on the sort of Democratic Union mm. side. And that's a start. In 1992, there was a new constitution, new election laws came in, and the first direct presidential election took place. Uh, an opposition candidate won that. Pun Salmagin Ochirabat, who had formerly been a, a People's Revolutionary Party member. In 96, you get the first non-communist government elected. Nice. And also the uh, Avalokiteshvara statue in the Gandan Temple was rebuilt. So this was originally, I think, built by the 8th Bog Khan to try and cure his blindness caused by the... Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and this time it was rebuilt by the Mongolian people through public subscriptions and, and donations from, from other Buddhist countries. So it is now the tallest indoor statue in the world. It's 26.5 metres high. Apparently very impressive. For our American friends, that's how much, how much in feet, Joe. I don't know. What are feet? Um, <laughs> uh, multi- multiply it by three. Like okay, 60-something feet. Cool. It's a big statue. It's about 85 feet, according to my... Right, I can do maths. There you go. Um, the only thing I measure in feet is the height of people. It's about uh, uh, so eighty-five subway sandwiches high. That's for our American colleagues. Uh, <laughs> that's, delicious that's how, subway. That's sandwiches. how Americans measure things, famously. <laughs> yeah. Twelve football fields, mm. small, small two-meter yeah. football fields. <laughs> anyway, in nineteen ninety-seven, um, a fun thing happened. The the communists had banned the use of clan names in Mongolian culture in the 20s, which was an important part of identity for Mongolian people. Um, so a lot of them had lost their surnames and their connection to their ancient families. Uh, and many families had lost knowledge about their clan associations because they were possibly the young, enthusiastic communists who uh, didn't want to know what granddad, you know, did. Um so when it became legal to have clan names again, a disproportionate number of families registered the most prestigious clan name of uh, Borjajin, which is the, you know, descendant of Genghis Khan. Uh, okay. So, uh, yeah, everyone just kind of went, I'll have that surname. My name is also Mr. Windsor. We're, we're all descendants of Genghis Khan anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> but directly. Yeah. In 1998... Mr. Zorig comes back into the story again. He was a Democratic Union Minister for Infrastructure. And the the current government was collapsing. So the the, the, the Prime Minister at the time had been had sold a government-owned bank to people with connections to his party. He was doing these corruption scandals and he had to step down. And Zorig had been agreed upon as a compromise candidate to replace him, but had not yet been announced. He went home and he was uh, brutally assassinated in his home at the age of 36 in wow. front of his wife, a woman called Bulgan, in what was alleged to be a robbery gone wrong, but seems incredibly implausible that that would be the case. So this is kind of the, the JFK assassination of Mongolia. Mm. Right. There were mass vigils. He lay in state in the government house and the government crisis continued for two months trying to pick another compromise candidate. Which was eventually uh, Janlavin Naranj uh, the mayor of Ulaanbaatar. So he was eventually named prime minister. 
But the, uh, the, the guy, the guy that you're talking about, Joe, just in case listeners have forgotten, is the guy who was the, basically the face of the of the democratic protest. Democratic of the student movement, yeah. yeah. Mm. Zorik's sister founded a, a new party to kind of look for justice, a civic will party. And there's a statue of him uh, facing the government buildings in Ulaanbaatar, kind of depicted as if he was going to work with his briefcase, mm. uh, which nice. is quite yeah. nice. Uh, there's lots of articles from various newspapers we can link to about what happened there. Three men were eventually tried for his murder in 2016 and jailed, but it was all done in secret. Uh, and people are not particularly Marvelous. satisfied. They get it. Yeah. And there was a quote from somebody from the a contem- contemporaneous quote from a 70 year old uh, monk commenting on the, the, the death of, the, of Zorik, who was known as the, uh, the golden swallow of democracy. That was his kind of nickname. And to co- commenting on his death, this this monk said, I was afraid that the totalitarian system would come back. I was concerned for the future of the other young men. I love those of the young men who are building the futures of the country. So he was very sad that one of these lights had been snuffed out. Mm. And so that's, I think, uh, what I'm going to say about specific politicians. But in, in, in 1999, uh, a, a man arrived from India on a tourist visa for a religious conference who had unexpected news to impart to his, his fellow Buddhists. Uh, would anyone like to guess who this, what age was he? I don't know, maybe like a 60-year-old um, Tibetan man had to he say for himself. He was the reincarnation of the Bog he, he, was, he was the reincarnation of... Uh, he, uh, he was the ninth Bog Bogd, oh, Gagin. According to him. Uh, according to, according to uh, the current Dalai really? Lama. Really? Oh, wow. Oh, so he was uh, apparently identified by the thirteenth Dalai Lama in Tibet in the thirties as a child, but it was considered unsafe to um, send him to Mongolia or tell Mongolia about him. Wow, due to the you know suppression, so he went into exile with the the fourteenth and current Dalai Lama who who lives in India in uh, Dharamsala, I think, and lived his life there he kind of didn't expect to ever fulfill his calling he, he became a, a lay person sometime tibetan language radio host occasional carpenter uh, had a family in 1999 he felt it was safe to go for a visit to his capital kept it reasonably secret because there were some chinese officials visiting and they didn't you know they didn't want to cause a scene but the lamas of of Ulaanbaatar accepted him in 2010, he was invited to. Okay, he was asked to leave because he was on a tourist <laughs> visa, um, which is kind of hilarious. Oh, boy. <laughs> in 2010, he was invited to the Gandhian Monastery and given Mongolian citizenship, which uh, helped. Then he went back to India again. People weren't really sure what he was going to do. And in 2011, he was enthroned as head of the um, the monastery in, in the Gandhian Monastery and became the Jebsamtamda Katulku. Well, that's nice. That's a really nice story. Mongolian Buddhism. That's the first nice yeah. story I um, think in this whole episode. Is that right? Pretty, pretty close. Well, it, it's going to get a little bit, a little bit. Um, so he, you know, he died in 2012. He was an elderly okay. man. Okay. Um, oh. uh, in Ulaanbaatar, though. So he, he got a year he out of it. His last to fulfill his destiny. It's great doing story. Doing the job yeah. he was born for. And in 2016, the uh, the current Dalai Lama visited Mongolia, and he believes. He told the crowd that the tenth Jebsantamba Kutuktu has been reborn in Mongolia. Mongolia, nice. Oh. 
and that the process for identifying him has begun. Uh, weirdly, the the policy that he would be identified in Tibet has lapsed with um, the Dalai Lama being Indeed. in exile from Tibet. That wouldn't that wouldn't help. And that's a that's a real I coincidence there. Yeah. I think it's it's interesting that he's trying to disentangle. You know, this is the third most important figure in Gelug Buddhism. Mm. He's trying to disentangle that from control of the Chinese government, I suppose, in the hope that a future Jebsen Dampa Katulku might play a role in future Dalai Lama identification, sure. maybe. So it's it's interesting how there's still the, the politics of um of Buddhism is still linked with government in East Asia and, and, and Central Asia. Uh, and that's probably not going to change anytime soon. There, there, there were some riots in 2008 where the Mongolian People's Party HQ got burnt down along with the Cultural Palace over some election fraud concerns. That was eventually quelled. Also interesting, in 2013, the city council renamed, that was run by the Democratic Party at that point, renamed uh, Sukhbatar Square, um, which was the central square where the old yellow palace gear would have been. It had been named after the, the communist hero Sukhbatar, the axe hero guy. And they renamed it Chinggis Square in honor of Chinggis Khan. Here they spelt it correctly in my notes. <laughs> uh, his statue overlooks the plaza from the uh, square's north side. But the name change was controversial. The Mongolian People's Party resisted it. And eventually um, a court decided it would go back to the way it had been before. So the politics of place names is still also a play. And conspicuous wealth has started to turn up. Yeah, in a kind of a boom of of natural resource extraction in the last decade or two, yep. um, which you know has has led to sort of uh, it's a quote from a Guardian article, but symptoms of sudden wealth are ubiquitous in Ulaanbaatar, where high end restaurants flank rubble strewn alleyways and brand new Land Cruisers tie up traffic on crumbling roads. More than half the city's one point two million residents live in Gare districts named after the Mongolian Feltline tents. As brutal winters and few prospects and herders surging into the city looking for work, they have become slum-like sprawls of hastily partitioned properties that lack running water and heating. So you've got this contrast between people, the kind of oligarch class who've gotten rich off the uranium and, and yep. other resources and the common people who maybe haven't. And that's that's a feature of Ulaanbaatar at the moment. And something I remember seeing years ago that I found fascinating, it's like Mongolia is one of the fastest growing highway um systems in the world but that's because they were starting from from such a low nothing. base yeah just a few roads in Ulaanbaatar and now they're if you go on google maps the density of like yellow roads compared to china and russia either side is, is hilariously disparate yeah. so what i saw in 2007 only about 2600 kilometers of mongolia's road network was paved at all wow uh, another and three, you know, like 4,000 kilometers are graveled yeah. or similar. And by 2013, uh, this has expanded to nearly double that. Okay. Uh, with with 1,800 kilometers completed in just 2014. So it's sort of growing exponentially from a very low starting point as, as this wealth kind of filters into infrastructure. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it's still a place where, like, it's still a country where half the population don't live in Ulaanbaatar. They live out and about and various rural districts and so if you're mostly on horseback why do you need roads i'm going to talk a little bit about the economy just because we're kind of talking about that anyway but um yeah we're up to modern day now yeah it's 
generally grown at a pretty fast pace again as you say joe going from a, a pretty low base um but particularly the increases in mining have helped uh, tremendously over the last couple of decades and mongolia attained a, a gdp growth rate of 11.7 percent in 2013 so that's huge that's fast and and what i read is that um their rise has has somewhat come on the coattails of the rise of china as well because they sell a lot of stuff to china sure. and they obviously yeah. export a lot of their minerals and stuff to china um so like they're near you know one of their nearest neighbors so however you know they they are now suffering from a slight slowdown uh caused by a decreased mm. growth in china over the last 3 to 4 years but obviously the the the, the gdp and the, the the economy is still growing pretty pretty well a pretty decent clip according to the imf mongolian gdp per capita is around 4100 us dollars which puts it at around 129th in the world yeah that's that's not it's not great yeah that's in the neighborhood of indonesia or our old friend suriname but again i'd imagine that if we're talking about ulaanbaatar it's significantly higher than that probably the you know the 50 percent of people who live outside of the city are probably dragging that average quite far down but also the the need for cash money is probably lower True enough so if you can feed yourself and look after your family then exactly the outlook is good with most projections indicating strong growth in the years ahead mainly due to the strength of the mining industry and minerals as i mentioned already represent more than 80 percent of mongolia's exports today a proportion expected to eventually rise to 95 percent it's a little over really relying on the mining and i think uranium and rare earths are also mined here as well which have their role in nuclear power and you know smartphone screens Mm. and other things so and they're those are also important and rare and notoriously bad for the environment but uh we won't get into that um a couple of famous people i don't know if you guys have any others i i looked up um chingis khan uh, yeah chingis khan specifically people from ulaanbaatar i was looking for radislav yevgenovich vargashkin is a retired russian cyclist Competed in the 1956 and 1960 Summer Olympics, apparently from Ulaanbaatar, but he competed for Russia. And uh, Nadgadin Tushenbayar is a Mongolian judo or judoka, and he was a 2008 Olympic champion. So that's pretty cool. Also, a lot of sumo wrestlers. There's a lot of sumo wrestlers from from Ulaanbaatar that I could find. There's There's dozens and dozens of them, so... I'm sure some of them are really famous if you follow sumo wrestling, but I do not. I I think I mentioned it briefly earlier, but like at Nadam, the kind of midsummer festival, which is massive in Ulaanbaatar and elsewhere in in, in different regional uh, hubs, the three sports, the three manly sports that exist are archery, obviously, horseback, like cross-country horse racing, obviously, and Mongolian wrestling. And uh, sometimes, like historically, it would have been the best monk, the best lama versus the best nomad um, with lots of blessings and so on. Go With, I think, you know, to celebrate a big festival, it could have been hundreds of people wrestling each other. Wow. Wow. Uh, anything else, guys? I think uh, it would be worth saying people should probably listen to the History of the Mongols podcast if they want to know more about... Uh, you know the rest of Mongolian history and its influence on the rest of the world. Probably a lot more that we didn't mention in, in this episode as well. Yeah, well, I mean, we we basically started in the twelve hundreds, <laughs> so uh, with a little bit of archaeology of one valley. 
So yeah, there's there's a lot more to the country, but um, this city is surprisingly interesting in its weird way that it's it's moved around and then settled on a place and then been replaced almost completely by the Russians, but it still continues to be the center of um, the politics and religion of of the country. Yeah. All right. On that note, if you want to find more episodes of this podcast, you can find them in pretty much whatever podcast player you're listening to this in we would love if you would review the show preferably uh in a, in a positive way uh on apple Podcasts. that'd be great <laughs> but be honest yeah. you know truth and merciless hardness that's, that's, what, that's we what we need. want the ungern von what's the name ungern von sternbach away that's a, the von sternberg uh, school of reviews that's where we're from <laughs> uh you can you can find more episodes wherever you get uh, get your podcasts. As I said, uh, you can search for 80 Days Podcast on Twitter or Facebook, or you can contact us directly at 80dayspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Patreon if you are so inclined to uh, back the podcast. If you if you feel like there's still value for money here, uh, we would we would dearly love to have a few of your pennies. Uh, you can throw them our way. Uh, Mexican dollars, or your Mexican brick dollars, tea, or bricks of tea. Also be accepted. <laughs> yeah. The lowest tier is about ten brick teas. We will. To- we will totally wow. accept brick tea. Exactly. I would love to, to to take some brick tea. Yeah, that's that's it. So thank you very much for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye, Artai.